this is Paula Morell, and welcome to the Tales from the South podcast, presented by bourbonandboots.com. Well, the preacher said I only wanted to say, wanted us all about the judgment day, telling us how rock and roll will never stay. How's everybody doing tonight? All right, well, welcome to a very special edition of Tales from the South, where Southerners bring their own true stories to life. We are on location in the historic Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas. Tales from the South is presented by our parent company, Southern Lifestyle brand, Bourbon and Boots, and I'm your host, Paula Martin Morell. Are y'all ready for some Southern style storytelling? Tonight is our season 11 kickoff show, and our storytellers all take us back to their childhood and different aspects of growing up a boy in the South. All stories are true and told by the Southerners who live them. Later tonight, Sam Parton takes us fishing and we'll end the night with Mark Schulte and a family trip to the Big Easy. But let's start the night here at Tales from the South, presented by bourbonandboots.com, with J.V. McKinney of baseball and Southern Division in the field. It was a warm spring day that day in 1953. I was 11, and my friends and I were playing baseball on our newly discovered field across the tracks from our white neighborhood. Soon, some black kids about our age drifted in and watched us from the sidelines. We were strangers to them and them to us. Even though we had grown up within three blocks of each other, no one from one group knew anyone from the other. Separate schools, separate worlds, separate but equal, politicians called it, very oppressive stuff. It had been the law of the land since 1896. After a time, the older one came over to me and asked if they could join us. Of course not, I said. This is our field, and besides, you don't have any gloves or bats. Little did I know how distinctly I would remember those words 60 years later. My brother and I grew up in a small town in the East Arkansas Delta in the 40s and 50s. We lived on Division Street. It was a great time and place to live if you were a kid. Our small frame rent house was in the last block of South Division before it passed under the railroad tracks and entered the African American community. Bubba and I and three other white friends from that tiny one-block area loved to play baseball. There was no organized ball back then and no good location to play. However, just down division and across the tracks was a field covered with weeds, knee-high to a grown man. Our dad asked the owners of the field to mow it for us. I was 11 in that spring of 1953. It was a time when kids could just be, and adults did not micromanage every move. 
After school, the five of us totally revved, grabbed our gloves, bats, and a ball, and headed down to our new field, pulling a red wagon filled with dirt from our backyard for an official pitcher's mound. The freshly mown grass smelled wonderful. The field was huge, room to run and throw and hit as hard as you could without any worry about breaking a window. It was pretty much heaven until the black kids showed up and I told them they couldn't play. We returned the next afternoon and our pitcher's mound had been kicked to smithereens. The black kids were sitting quietly on the sidelines. Immediately, we went back home, refilled the wagon, headed back, rebuilt the mound, and played ball the rest of the day. The next afternoon, our mound was flattened again. This destroy and rebuild malarkey went on for more than a week. We started bringing a load of dirt on the way down after school. That was a lot of work, and something just did not feel right. So one afternoon after rebuilding the mound, I simply walked over to the kid who had asked about playing. I told him my name, and he told me his. When I handed him my glove, he took it, smiled, and said thanks. We all shared names and gloves that day, and five black kids and five white kids became 10 ball players. We had a blast until dark. We could hit the all fields. Before a ball hit the right field was an automatic out. Both groups had gained freedom, and the phrase, our field forever, took on new meaning. After school the next day, the pitcher's mound was not disturbed. Soon, someone had chalked baselines from home to first and third, and burlap bags with sawdust had replaced our flimsy pieces of cardboard at each base. That generous act probably came from a parent of our new friends. The field had become a very special place for some lucky kids from both sides of the tracks. We soon did away with the built-up pitcher's mound. The center of so much conflict in the beginning was not even needed when we started playing ball together. Maybe everyone was meant to be on the same level at the field. Eventually, everyone had their own gloves, some new, some used, and all were shared when players went into bat. The next spring, in 1954, the Supreme Court, with its 9-0 Brown versus the Board of Education action, declared the oppressive doctrine of separate, of separate but equal unconstitutional. It was a huge step in the long process toward integration. That same spring, official Little League baseball was organized in our town for white kids only. There were, there were fancy uniforms, night games, and a beautiful new ballpark on the north side of town. It also involved coaches and various other adults. My coach was wonderful, but kid baseball with and without adults were two very different critters, both for great, but with kids only, there was far more freedom. There was no freedom at all 
if you could not play Little League because of the color of your skin. Some of us played Little League and continued to play down at the field. White friends from Little League would often come down, cross the tracks, and join us for some great black and white kid baseball on division. On cloudless, blazing summer days, when it was too hot to play at the field, the whole crew, including our black friends, would come over to our house on division and play a creative version of summertime small ball in the shade of a huge walnut tree in our backyard. Over a three-year period, we wore the grass down to cool, bare dirt. The ball bounced true like on a gym floor. Mom would furnish Kool-Aid for everyone. Sadly, it did not last forever. By junior high, we each had other interests at still separate schools, and we drifted apart. The grass regrew in our backyard and recovered the worn down base, part, base paths at the field. Eventually, I played organized baseball through four years of college, followed by almost 20 years of adult league softball. But I never again played a single game with a black teammate, never. In 1969, dangerous racial tensions were crackling in our small Delta town. Mom and Dad still lived in the old house on Division. My brother and I were very concerned for them. We were in our 20s, married and living in other cities. We were back home for a brief visit that summer and sitting on the front porch when a huge African-American man walked into our yard and approached us. He was one of our friends from the field. The three of us sat, talked, laughed, and shared great stories about beautiful times together down at the field and in our backyard. Eventually, conversation changed to ugly times happening right then in the town we loved. As our friend rose to leave, he quietly said, don't worry about your parents, they will be safe. The field has become one of the driving narratives of my life. The small rent house is gone, but the field still exists, literally in dirt and grass and powerfully in metaphor. I can, just re I can still return to my hometown, walk to the center of the field, and just be. I still remember that spring afternoon, afternoon over six decades ago when we shared names and gloves the sweet smell of fresh-cut grass, the surprise of sawdust bags and chalk baselines, the way black and white hens look together climbing the bat for first pick when choosing sides, and the reverence our new friends displayed the first time they held a Jackie Robinson bat. I will never forget the deep emotion stirred when our friend assured us of our parents' safety. My life has been filled with tremendous blessings. Without question, one was being part of a small group of black and white kids, just being kids, years ago in the East Arkansas Delta, playing ball past sundown on the same side of division.
J.B. McKinney lives in North Little Rock after retiring from a 38-year career with the YMCA of Little Rock and Bristol, Tennessee. His childhood hometown was Forest City, Arkansas. Next on Tales from the South, presented by BourbonandBoots.com, Sam Parton goes searching for a bag for his lures in Cast Off Purse. I was tying on more leader and a new hook one late afternoon after a tussle with a bass. When I missed my pocket and lost all my hooks and most of my lead in a fast riffle, I searched for hooks and lead in the rushing water until I found enough to finish the day, but I would need most of what was left of my summer job money to buy more. I cursed as I kicked the water with my worn out sneaker. I was 14 and finally old enough to get to a trout stream on my own and did so whenever I could escape chores and schoolwork. I had no more notion of how to fly fish than what I could glean from my classmates and an occasional look at a ragged two-year-old field and stream magazine at the barber shop. I could tell from that magazine, however, that there was a wide gulf between my gear and other people's gear. Not only were there rods and reels of extravagant design and price and of many types for different kinds of fish and fishing, there were purpose-made boxes, bags, and clothing that clearly made fishing on the go and especially on a stream much more convenient. Man, I wanted some of those things in that magazine. I knew that I could not afford them, however, and my parents would merely say, you've got a rod and reel, use it or you don't need those bags or boxes or vests, you have a tackle box and stuff in it, go fish. Put your hooks, leaders, and lead in your pocket. So fish I did, and with my old rod and reel and a pocket full of tackle, I would wade the streams of my youth, leaving the large metal tackle box on the bank. I had a few flies that I kept in a white cardboard prescription pill box, so these were in my shirt pocket as I met the after-school sun while walking upstream, thigh deep in the cold water of Emerald Creek on many fall days that year. I would catch a trout regularly in certain pools of the creek, and occasionally in the riffles below pools, I would hook an even more energetic smallmouth bass. I was in for a haircut the morning after I lost my hooks and lead in Emerald Creek, so I got to looking at the old field and stream and once again studied the kinds of bags fly fishermen in the pictures were wearing and began to think about how to make one. My dad and I were, used a homemade game bag for rabbits and squirrels for years. And goofy looking as it may have been, it was effective. I wished I could get away with using the haircut money for a store-bought bag. But I knew my ma would catch on to that right off. And it wasn't my money and she wanted to me to look better than I was likely to for church. In the end, money was again wasted on a haircut, and I walked home still mulling my problem over. When I got home, I gave my ma the change and groused about the lack of money for a fishing bag. She grinned at me and said, why don't you use one of my old purses? I couldn't believe she would even mention such a thing. I can't be seen wearing a purse on Emerald Creek. Well, she started, I have an old brown leather one that maybe wouldn't be so obvious. I'll get it. She returned with the very purse. I remembered it. I remembered seeing her wear it. It had a long shoulder-length leather strap. She was right. It was plain brown leather with a large flap that covered the 
actual zippered bag under the flap. It was not too big either, not like the purse that swallowed Chicago or anything. <laughs> Eddie's mother had a purse like that. It was roughly the size of a Macy's shopping bag at Christmas. Ma said, maybe you could alter it in some way to be useful for your fishing. It's yours anyway. I didn't want to put it on my shoulder. This was probably because I'd seen her wear it that way. But I got my wade fishing stuff out and began to see that I could get all my stuff in there and then some. It occurred to me that if it had loops on the back, I could wear it on my belt. Somewhere in the field and stream, I'd seen a guy wearing a bag, something like that. I asked Ma if she could sew such a thing together, but she said the leather was too thick for her sewing machine, but that the shoe repair man might could. I wondered out loud how much he might charge. Ma said, it's Saturday and he is open today, so why don't you go see if he can do it and how much he wants for the work? With only middling enthusiasm, I took the purse and carefully hid it in a brown paper grocery bag <laughs> and headed to the town square to see the old man who repaired shoes. He was reading the local newspaper when I came in. His place always smelled of glue, polish, and of course, chewing tobacco. He looked over his paper at the interruption that had just walked in and asked gruffly, what can I do you for? I opened my brown bag and fetched out the purse. He laughed when I explained what I had in mind and I turned red. After a good long laugh, however, he got interested in the job and seemed to get interested in the idea of reusing some good leather. After he examined the purse and strap, he said, I think you should reuse the strap and make one real long loop and sew it to the back of your purse. I mean, fishing bag. <laughs> I said, how much you think? He eyed the purse and then he eyed me and said, 50 cents. Phew, I had brought my money for the Western Auto Store to get hooks and lead and I would have enough to do the purse too. So I said, when can you do it? He chuckled and said, got a hot date with Emerald Creek, huh? Okay, I'll do it now. Let's see your 50 cents. I paid him and he set to work. I went on to the Western Auto Store and went directly to the back shelves where the small supply of fishing and hunting gear was kept. I touched everything as I always did. The store owner knew me by heart, so he did not even bother coming back. He knew I would touch everything, but he had some kind of radar knowledge that let him know I would, do not, I would not do more than touch. Finally, I made my selection of the basics for fishing. Number 16 bait keeper hooks, four pound leader, and the tiniest split shot he had. I decided to spend the last of my money on a small plastic box with compartments inside. It had two hinges, one on each side. It was small enough to go into my fishing bag. As I paid the hardware man, he eyed the plastic fly box and whistled, then said, getting serious, aren't you? I turned red again and said, yeah, always serious about fishing. When I got back to the shoe repair shop, the man was waiting for me. He handed me the brown bag with the cast off purse inside. I slowly took it out and was ready to bust. I was so happy. He had made a leather strip of about six inches long and two inches wide from the purse strap and sewed it with heavy waxed thread to the back of the purse. He gave me an old extra long leather belt to put it on with. It was better than what I'd seen in Field and Stream. 
I wore at home, no longer worried who might see me. <laughs> Ma was pleased. I was and remained an only child, and this was the only purse she would get to hand down. Sam Parton lives with his wife, Esther, in Conway, Arkansas, and writes stories with mostly outdoor and nature themes, but will stoop to writing a tearjerker now and then. In our final story of the night here at Tales from the South, presented by BourbonandBoots.com, it's a family vacation to New Orleans that Mark Schulte will never forget in Six Flags Over the French Quarter. Okay. It was the 70s, and air travel was not my parents' thing. To ensure that I would not see the inside of a commercial airliner until college, family vacations were only in the car, and never ever more than a day's drive. This normally meant a trip to Six Flags over Texas, which was fine with me, because a day of screaming on the rides is the ultimate heaven to an eight-year-old boy, or as close to heaven as you can be without incorporating bodily function humor. The six sections of the park gave our vacation an international flair, allowing us to roam from France, look, a French flag, to Mexico, look, a sombrero, in a matter of minutes. It's what a trip to Epcot must have been like if it you know, hadn't been more than a day's drive. <laughs> to show that my family wasn't just a one-trip pony, we spiced things up one year by going to Six Flags in Missouri. While the name was the same, the choice of rides was severely limited, and it was so limited that no amount of bodily function humor could have helped. <laughs> but this summer, we really were going to try something different. Our family trip would be to New Orleans. As a 10-year-old, I didn't know much about New Orleans, but it sounded fun, and if it was vacation, there had to be roller coasters, right? To this day, I remember the car ride well, cruising at 55 miles an hour, thanks Jimmy Carter, in our bronze Chevy Malibu with the beige vinyl top, we passed through Transylvania and northern Louisiana. They even had a bat on their water tower. This was the best vacation ever. <laughs> then we drove across the 20-mile Lake Pontchartrain Bridge. It was like being at the ocean, or I assume it was, because, you know, that was more than an hour's drive away. As anyone who's been to New Orleans knows, the true experience involves staying at one of the quaint hotels just off Bourbon. It's the only way to really soak up the unique flavor of the Crescent City. And that's why my family chose the Travel Lodge on I-10 just outside of Metairie. <laughs> Once we were in New Orleans proper, we finally found parking. Paid parking, which my father cursed about under his breath and over it too. We came from a place where there was plenty of free parking all across the front yard. But paying meant we were free to take advantage of the city's unique history and quaint 19th century charm. But actually, we toured the Superdome. You see, it had just been built, and because its flawed abilities to house hurricane survivors wasn't known yet, it was considered the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> so sc screw old history, this was new history. We eventually did make our way to the French Quarter, which was nothing like the French section of Six Flags. First of all, there was no roller coaster, and there was no Mexican quarter, Spanish quarter, or USA quarter nearby. But it turns out one quarter was enough. We had just had our first beignet, otherwise known as a sack of powdered sugar with a little funny-shaped donut in it. My mother was looking for postcards so she could send them to our friends. 
Guess which state adjoining Arkansas we're in this time, they would read. It was here that I saw my first homeless person. He wore old tattered clothes, hadn't bathed in weeks, and sat on a concrete planter with urine steadily trickling from between his legs. Bodily function humor, this was the best vacation ever. <laughs> my parents were oblivious to the quaint French Quarter charm I was experiencing. My mother was busy, busy coveting the horse-drawn carriage rides. My father was busy reminding her that we couldn't afford it because we had to pay to park. <laughs> it was around this time a man approached us. This one was not urinating. He was instead neat, neatly dressed and dryly dressed and asked us if we would be interested in taking a carriage ride for free. My mother only heard the words carriage ride. My father only heard the word free. Neither of them seemed to hear the words that came next. All you have to do, he said, is tour some timeshare condominiums right in the quarter. No obligation or purchase necessary. My mother was already in the carriage, clutching her bag of postcards and still dusting powdered sugar off her pants. But the kind, non-urinating man repeated the full details of the offer, and even with that minor caveat, it was music to my parents' collective ears. Of course we wouldn't buy anything, so the ride would be completely free. This was a skill my parents would hone over the years, my mother eventually using it to get free luggage at a timeshare resort in Fairfield Bay, practically, using it, uh, practically racing from the condominiums with her cheap plastic luggage, retail value $500, while the salesman reminded her that unlike the luggage, the condos would have excellent resale value. Our horse-drawn carriage ride was beginning. I was so hopped up on powdered sugar, I would have been excited about touring in the Malibu. But my mother was thrilled, and so was my father. It was the greatest ride ever, all three blocks of it. <laughs> then we were dumped unceremoniously at the timeshare headquarters while the carriage went to get more victims, uh, I mean prospects. For the next hour, we were forced to feign an interest in being neighbors with the urinating man for one week every year. Now, a trip to New Orleans wouldn't be complete without a walk down Bourbon Street, and apparently this rule is true even if you have a 10-year-old boy in tow. So down the street we went. The first sign I noticed had two lines on it. The upper line said topless and bottomless with an ampersand in the middle. Directly under it, it said men and women with an ampersand, but they shared the same one. My decade-old brain could hardly process this poorly thought-out sign design. Was everyone topless and bottomless? Were the men topless and the women bottomless, like a couple on TV sharing a men's pajama set? <laughs> I was so confused. Maybe my dad was too. He had moved on to a club with a more direct sign. Nude girls, it promised. <laughs> the bouncer opened the door just long enough for a peek. My, my dad stood in the middle of Bourbon Street watching these brief moments of uh, titillation. My mother quickly whisked me away to the nearest souvenir shop where I perused the miniature Superdomes. My father never did enter the strip club. I'm sure the cover charge was too high and there was no timeshare offered to defray the cost. <laughs> the distraction trip to the souvenir shop, however, cost my mother a Superdome license plate, the perfect gift for a boy who wouldn't own a car for another seven years. Instead, it stayed attached to my bedroom wall once we got home. And once we got home, we were there for another year. But this year's trip had proven very interesting, and it had also proven something else. Next year, we'd be back at Six Flags Over Texas. 
Mark Schulte's friends and family often call him the permanent record for his ability to remember random and sometimes embarrassing facts about things they did decades ago. Their pain is your gain. So how about our stories and storytellers tonight? Thank you to all of our writers. Thank you to our live audience here in the historic Argenta Arts District. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Stitcher Smart Radio. And you can download and listen to our podcast on our website. We are open for submissions from all Southerners. More can be found at TalesFromTheSouth.com. Tales from the South is presented by our parent company, Southern Lifestyle Brand, Bourbon and Boots. Have a great night, and we'll see you next time for another edition of Tales from the South. Good night, everybody. Saying I only wanted to say, warning us all about the judgment day, telling us how rock and roll will never stay. And all the sinners and lovers and the concubines were living on peace and a bottle of wine. Me and the boys are too scared to do anything tonight. In a gold plated play, bless us all for heaven's sake. Say a long prayer tonight and I hope it takes. Shout it out, brother, sing that hillside too. Shout it out, sister. Yeah.
preacher said I only wanted to sing One us all about the judgment day Telling us how rock and roll will never stay 